All right, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. We're about seven weeks in, and we're going to finish chapter 2 today. That's pretty good. Only 24 more to go. Last week, if, if you weren't here, I'll just give you a real quick summary because we're going to start at kind of an awkward place this morning uh, because I didn't want to continue in the text uh, to hear the response of the people until this morning because I want to tie the response with the people with the creation of the church in these kind of last two sections uh, of chapter 2. But so last week we looked at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So if, if you're unfamiliar with kind of the church history of that, is Pentecost was a, a celebration, a festival where Jews gathered together um, to worship the Lord. And at this particular Pentecost, um, there's about 120, give or take, followers of Jesus. And they're all meeting together, praying and, and waiting for a promise that, that Peter quotes in last week's text from the book of Joel. And the promise is that as Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, as he's risen again, conquering death, and as he has ascended into heaven, he's not just left us, but that he's going to send the Holy Spirit so that he would indwell us and, and work in and through us uh, for his work so that people would come to know who Jesus is. And, and so that's what happens is the Spirit is poured out on the people. And one of the things that happens is they begin to speak in all these other languages that Jews from all over the known world uh, that are gathered together, they understand and, and they hear and they go, how do these Galileans know how to speak my language? And, and there's some confusion about a miraculous act has been done for certain, but what's the point? And so that's where we looked at Peter's sermon last week. Miracles, all miracles, are just miracles in and of themselves, but they all are meant to point us to the one who brought those miracles. And so this miracle was to point to Jesus. And so over the course of kind of verses 14 to, to 36 for last week, Peter talked about three different Old Testament passages and showed his Jewish hearers that this Messiah that you've been waiting for, that he is Jesus of Nazareth. And that even though he was rejected by the crowds as a whole, but this was actually God's uh, foreordained plan so that Jesus would go to the cross, that he would die for our sins, that he would be the atoning sacrifice, which, which simply means that that Old Testament sacrificial system was no longer needed because Christ was sacrificed once for all the, for the forgiveness of sins. And so Peter declares to them that, yes, yes, you sent him to death, but this was God's plan. And it's not too late to respond. All we need to do is make a response. And, and I didn't give the response last week because I wanted us to read those verses here. And so the crowds have heard, and here's their response, verse 37. When they heard this, the gospel that was declared by Peter, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Peter preaches the gospel. And the gospel has a way, and we talked about this before, the gospel has a way, especially when Jesus would share something, a response was needed. It wasn't just intellectual information for our heads so that we could know things, but, but there was a response that was needed, and, and we see that in the crowds here. They heard this, and it says they were cut to the heart. It's a very unusual expression in the New Testament. They were cut to the heart, but I think you and I can understand that expression. Is how many times in our lives have, have we heard something or, or seen something, and it wasn't just academic, but it hit us right where we live and where we went, I have to do something about this. I can't just sit back and see what's happening without a response. And this is how the crowds respond. They need to do something. And so what do they ask? Well, they say to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We've, we've heard that Jesus was the Messiah. We heard that he came and that we rejected him and yet he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again and he's inviting us into relationship with him. But, but how do we go about doing that? See, if we present the gospel but we don't tell people what the response is, can be to the gospel is we're only giving them part of the message. And so Peter responds, here's here's what to do. Repent. Repentance is the key of this. And we're going to talk about this whole sentence because there's some confusion here sometimes. But repentance is, is the main message that Peter is trying to say to the people. And so what is repentance? Again, that's maybe not a word that we use too often in our common vernacular. Well, the word picture is simply this, is we were going in one direction, we were living one way, and repentance is acknowledging what we're doing, where we're headed, how we're living is not right, and we're going to turn the other way, and we're not only going to turn, but we're going to walk in that new direction. Repentance is is a response. It's not a feeling. It's not an acknowledgement that I need this. It's the action of turning and walking towards Jesus. Peter says, repent. Now, this is hugely important, especially as we kind of look at the beginning, the creation of the church here down in verse 42 in a few moments is that the gospel isn't just good news for us to hear, respond, and go, okay, good, now I can go be with God for eternity, and now I can just continue to live however I want. The gospel is, is, no, you're walking one way, and that way leads to death. Would you repent of that and turn and walk towards this way? Because this leads to life. 
And this is kind of where the New Testament then talks about kind of deeds and, and faith and, and how, do we, how do we see those things as the same. Sometimes pe- people will argue, well, Paul in Ephesians says it's by grace that you've been saved, not through works. But then later James says, well, works without deeds is dead. What we have to remember is the audience and the people that they're talking to is, is Paul's reminding the Ephesians that, that religious exercise is not going to get you to heaven. Observance of certain laws, you are not going to earn your way into heaven, but your way has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus on the cross. But that awareness, that acknowledgement should change every bit of who we are and what we do and how we choose to live. More on that in a moment. So he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Now to Peter, baptism was very important. It was, it was just a, a central piece of the gospel message. And, and you see that in Peter's letters, First and Second Peter, later on in the New Testament. And sometimes people will say here that what he's saying is repent and be baptized, and then you'll be forgiven of your sins. But baptism has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins other than to declare externally what has happened internally. And so notice Peter doesn't give us a choice with that. He says, when you repent, then be baptized. Make a declaration to all those who are in witness with you that what has happened internally is how you intend to move forward with a new understanding of how we ought to live. See, forgiveness comes at repentance. And this is really important for us to realize. Is if somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and the next day they're hit by a bus but they haven't had the chance to be baptized, they're going to be with, with Jesus in eternity because they repented and they chose to follow him. Now on the flip side, is baptism is that important aspect of going, we need to do this. It's a command in scripture because it ties, it's, it, let me say it this way, is our faith internally should never only be internal. It can't only be internal or it's not real. And that's James's point when he says faith without works is dead. Is if we don't act out what our beliefs are, then do we really even believe them in the first place? You know, today is a good example. What day on the calendar is it? Super Bowl Sunday, right? How many are going to watch the Super Bowl at 4.30? Okay, a few people. There's, there's different types of sports people, right? There's people who, like, are casual fans. Well, that's lovely. I'll go watch the game. And then there's people who live, breathe, and diet. Right? Their whole identity is whether they're a Kansas City Chief fan or a San Francisco 49er fan, and they, for today, will hate each other. And then tomorrow will be okay again. And there's this sense there that we should look at this and go, if we are in Christ, then that should consume every bit of what we do. How we live, how we talk, how we interact with people, how we love each other. All of this is meant to be there. We're not meant to be casual fans or observers of Christ. We're submitting to him as Lord. If you like to read, there's a fantastic book by Kyle Eidelman called Not a Fan. And his point is that we can't be fans of Jesus. We're either followers or we're sitting in the armchair yelling at the coach telling him how he should do it, but not willing to get up and actually do anything about it. 
It's a great resource. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Make external so that the world or so that the people around can see. And then you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to talk more about this in the text later, uh, in the weeks ahead, about what, what is, does the Holy Spirit come upon baptism? Does it come at repentance? How does this look? We're going to get there. So if you have questions, that's good. And I encourage you to do some study on your own before we get there. But we're going to get there. Peter's point is that this is one occurrence. This is one act. We repent, we're baptized, and we receive the Holy Spirit. And in fact, what you see at the end of there is uh, verse 41, is those who received his word were what? What does it say? They were baptized. As soon as they heard and responded to the gospel, they went, we have to do this. In fact, there's a great story um, with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he doesn't understand what's happening. And Philip comes, and, and through, through kind of God's leading, he is able to explain to him the gospel. And then, and then we're not really sure how long it's happening, but they're in a chariot, so it's like they're on a car ride, essentially. And they're on this ride together, and the Ethiopian eunuch goes, hold on, there's water there. What prevents me from being baptized? So to Philip, baptism was an essential part of the gospel message. So much so that the Ethiopian eunuch, when he saw the water, went, yes, I need to do that. Might only be Philip there, or there might be a church family there, or there might be 3,000 people there. But what happened internally needs to happen externally, and then the Holy Spirit is going to be given to us. And then he gives us this statement here. This is really important. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Two things in there that we want to deal with is first of all, we kind of see this Acts 1.8, right? This, this declaration of Jesus that they will be, um, the disciples of Jesus will be his um, witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, but ultimately to the ends of the earth. And Acts is going to lead us in that way. It starts with the Jewish people, but it moves beyond that. And that's what he says here. It's for you, but it's for your children, and it's for those who are far off. For those who don't have the Old Testament, who don't have the Hebrew Bible, who have never heard of who God is, this message of Jesus, it's for them too. It's for all of us. Then here's the second thing, and this is a really important doctrine, but a really hard one to grasp. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God is the one that's doing the work, not us. And that's really important for us to grasp. Yes, we have a response to make to that, but it's God who stirs in our hearts It's God who is running after us, showing us that we need him. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 would word it a little bit differently. He says this, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul's point is the same, is that it's God that begins the work. He calls you to himself. And when we respond in repentance to him, then what does he do? Oh, then he justifies us. And what is that word justified? It's a legal term, which means we stand uncondemned before a holy God. It means that God took 
He sent Jesus who paid the price and the penalty for our sins so we can stand before him. This is a crazy thing. We can stand before God and be declared righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. So he calls me. He justifies me. And then he glorifies me, which is a way of saying that we will be with God God for all of eternity, that, that though we will die now, and we read that in uh, John 11 earlier, is though that we die now, we will be raised again the same way that Jesus was raised. And we will be given a new body, and that new body will have no sickness or pain or hurt, and that new body will last for all of eternity with God. But he's the one that begins the work in us. And this is important because otherwise we think that, well, the only reason that I came to faith is because I understood I needed to. But that person, they haven't yet. Well, then the point is about me and my intelligence, my ability to comprehend. But the point isn't about me. The point is that God does it. Ephesians 2 says that while we were still dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. He did the work, not us. And I think that's actually deeply important and and meaningful, but it's also great news because that there's no pressure for me to perform then because I was dead, but I have been made alive in Christ. I'm declared righteous on the works of Jesus. And so it's not about me proving that I deserve forgiveness. It's not about me uh, doing enough good deeds to show that, yes, see, see, I'm worthy of your forgiveness. It's about recognizing that in Christ and in Christ alone, do I find hope? What he has done. And so my response, well, Peter says, it's to repent. And this is for all people. And then Luke reminds us, and with many other words, he bore witness. He continued to exhort them. He was continuing to teach them. But then he says this strange little thing. Save yourself from this crooked generation. But I thought it was Jesus who saves us, not us saving ourselves. So again, I think sometimes we overcomplicate the text. He's not saying salvation. He's saying, so you now that you recognize, here's where your hope lies, is is don't go back to this. This didn't fulfill to begin with. It didn't give you hope and purpose and meaning. We maybe thought it did. But when we heard the message of Jesus, we realized that this This is what we need. And this is why I say every bit of our life and our response to Christ ought to change when we become a believer because we recognize just how sinful the world is, how broken the world is, and how little of it we actually want because it can't compare to Christ. Paul would say, I don't compare suffering even, sorry, I don't compare my suffering even worth comparing to what is to come. This world has nothing to offer me that will last, that will give me joy beyond momentary satisfaction. And so you and I as well, is how often do we turn on the news, as Ernie mentioned, and we watch it and we're filled with anxiety or stress or or maybe frustration and anger at what's going on? How often do we do that or how many times do we do that excuse me, until it becomes a completely normal thing and we're just desensitized to it. This is just our world. It is what it is. 
And then all of a sudden, we're not following Jesus and living as a bright light in a dark generation. We're, we're just kind of fitting in with the generation. We're going, yeah, I follow Jesus, but I kind of do all these other things too. And, and Peter's trying to say, no, we need to save ourselves from that mindset. We can't do that. We're going to talk about this again in just a minute. And so he finishes this section by saying, those who received his word, they were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now again, right, if you think exponentially, there's about 120 followers of Jesus. One person gets up kind of as the spokesperson on behalf of those 120, declares the gospel, and 3,000 people come to faith? This is a miraculous work. This is an amazing moment. The fact that this many people responded, it generally seems like basically the whole crowd hears the message and goes, yes, I need to repent, I need to be baptized, and I want to follow Jesus. And through the beginning of Acts, we're going to see this more and more as that every day people were being added because they were seeing that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and people responded to that accordingly. Here's the good news in that, right? is Peter stood up and presented the gospel and let God work. So that's all you're called to do as well. Right? You and I were called to declare the goodness of God and then to allow the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of people. And maybe 3,000 people will come to faith, and maybe nobody does in that moment. But it's God's work. He's the one calling them. He's the one preparing them. He's the one that's going to bring them to himself. And so we don't need to rely on ourselves for the response, is if, if 10 people had heard and not 3,000, it wouldn't have nullified the fact that God was about to use these 120 people to, to change the entire world. And so when you think, who am I? What can I do? Good. I'm not that big a deal. But the one I serve is. And he can do all things. And so if he's called you to preach the message to somebody, preach the message. If he's called you to love them and to serve them, go and do that in the name of Jesus and watch what God is going to do because he's going to do miraculous things. So like I said, this response that they make is not just intellectual, and we see that in the next verses here. This is kind of the formation of the church. But in verse 42, there's four things that we need to see so that we can have a correct uh, theology of the church. What is it? Well, it says they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, I would actually argue that most of what the church does moving through the New Testament and what we ought to be doing today should focus on one of those four things. Not that there aren't other ideas and other things, other ministry opportunities that we can do, but these need to be at the center. Now, it doesn't say that they went home and they considered these things. It says they devoted themselves to these things. So first, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they devoted themselves to the scriptures. Are we devoted to the scriptures? Is this book that we have that, that you know, many of us have several copies in our house and on our phones and on our iPads and everywhere around us, this book of the Bible, is this the thing that we go, we're devoted to this. This is how I'm going to learn who God is and how he's called me to live. 
I think a lot of times we're not very devoted to it. This is so the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, fellowship, this is where it's really important that we see that the church is meant to be who? A group of people, not us as individuals. See, here's the reality is I get discouraged real easy, real fast. Just ask Shayla. And I can go, man, I'm quit. This is dumb. I'm over it. I don't know what to do. I, I, right, fill in the blank. And I need people to remind me, no, this is to what you were called. This is who Jesus is. And, and you've committed to serving your life for him. And he's worthy of it. And it's worth it. I need that in my life because when I go through struggles and difficulties, sometimes I respond positively, but sometimes I respond with woe is me and God, how could you possibly do this? And if I don't have people to bring me back into a rational thought about who Jesus is, then I'm going to go down a rabbit trail that I should not go down. We need fellowship. And that's not just to correct, right? The Bible talks about correcting, rebuking, exhorting, encouraging, There's so many different adjectives about being together, encouraging one another as we're meant to live life together. We're going to see that again in a moment. Third thing, breaking of bread. Here's the good news. We get to eat together, right? And it sounds maybe like overly simplified, but I think there's two things he's saying in here. One is communion, right? The way that Jesus said when you come together, when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, remind yourself of the gospel, preach it to yourself, remind yourself that Christ is coming again, because we need that reminder. But I also think it just means eat together, because there's something special and unique that happens, and, and I hope you've seen this on our monthly potlucks, is that when we sit and when we eat together, there's a certain sense of vulnerability where our guard is let down just a little bit, and we're willing to have conversation with people. In our homes, do we invite people in and do we feed them and do we show them hospitality so that we're saying we're eating together, we're, we're deepening our relationship with one another? And then to prayer. Now again, Ernie mentioned it next Sunday at 9 a.m. upstairs in the library. Sorry, I wasn't pointing back at the people watching upstairs in the library. We're going to gather together, and last, week was, or last month was a beautiful time where several of us gathered together and we prayed for each other, for our church, for our friends, for our family, for the Bow Valley. We prayed words of Scripture. We reminded ourselves the truth of who God is. That's got to be a very centerpiece for us as we look forward to growing in our faith, as we need to be people of prayer. So they devoted themselves to these four main areas. And this is what our church is devoting ourselves to in various ways, these four main areas. And then verse 43 comes. Now, this is important. We're going to note this. If you have the NIV, the NIV is a fine translation, but they don't help you here because they tie two things together that aren't meant to explicitly be tied together. Most of the other main translations get it, I think, more correctly with the, with the Greek here. But it says this, right? In the ESV, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The NIV words it that awe came upon every soul at the wonders and signs. I think there's something there that we need to be leery of. Is 
If you saw a miracle, would that bring awe and wonder on you? For sure. But the awe and the wonder is first, and then the miracles are second in the text here. It says that they recognized that the message of Jesus, the gospel declared to them, brought to them awe and wonder. Did miracles aid that? For sure. Of course it did. Now, you and I happen to live in a time and a place where miracles don't happen like they were in Acts. But have you ever experienced God's awe and wonder? I think it's actually pretty easy to live here and experience that, isn't it? You ever find yourself walking out of your home, walking to the car, walking downtown, and you just see what God has created around us and just you're filled with awe and wonder? Yes, miracles will help that. But God is worthy of our worship because he has created all things. And he has knit us together. And he is at work in the cosmos in so many ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. And so when we know who Jesus is, Randy always says this to me at our elders meeting, it's amazing to consider that the creation of the world loves you. That alone should bring awe. But I think it becomes very normal for us. Yeah, God loves me. He sent Jesus. I know these things. Well, if we don't look at the cross regularly and remind ourselves of just how much we do not deserve it and yet how much God has loved us, if we begin to look at it regularly with that awe, then all of a sudden our relationship with God is going to grow like crazy. Because it's not out of duty or obligation. It's not because we were deserving of it. It's because there's a holy God who loves you and me. And they were... And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Again, we want to clarify this. Is some people have tried to take these verses and move it towards a communism kind of idea. Is that everything was just to be shared all the time together. That's making the text say what it doesn't say. Were there needs? Yes. And did people sell possessions to meet those needs? Yes, because they cared for one another. They didn't have some kind of political agenda to go, we're all going to sell everything we have, put it in a bucket in the middle, and if you need cash, just show up, grab it, and get stuff, and do what you need to do. It doesn't work because we're sinful people who have sinful hearts. And I think that I need this thing that is way more than I need, and you think you need that thing, and all of a sudden we're fighting over, well, who needs what more? The point here is not that they sold everything that they had, and we'll see this as we move into kind of chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira, which is a very complex story, but we're going to deal with that, is that people came and they sold some of their possessions and some of their things because there were needs within the community and they knew they could meet those needs. There's a challenging question to us. Is when was the last time we sold something? that we had because we saw someone else in need and when I can, I can respond. I think usually, let me speak for me here, usually what I do is I justify why I have what I have and how I actually need it for what God's called me to do and so I better keep it and then I'll figure some other way out. Which usually ends with me not thinking about it anymore. Somebody else will help. Somebody else will do something. See, here's the thing. They devoted themselves to these four things and one of the practical outflows of these things was that I love and I care for everyone that's part of my church family. Here are these 3,000 people and they were going to do whatever it took to care for and to love and to show that they were together in mission and journey. 
we keep saying this at our board level, is we can't meet the needs of people if we don't know what the needs of people are. So how are we going to know what the needs of people are? We're going to weasel our little ways into their lives <laughs> to show them that we love them and we care for them so that we can know. Let me say it this way. I'm not going to name the person because they're in this room. Rarely when we walk up to somebody and we say, hey, are you doing okay? Rarely will they be really honest and vulnerable and say, no, my life's a mess right now. Usually what do we say? I'm okay. Right? Like, it's okay. I got problems, but you got problems too, so it's fine. We'll just... And we don't do anything about it. If we know each other well enough, someone else came into my car the other day. I said, how are you doing? And he went, oh, whew, it's been a week. And then they went, actually, it's, it's really not good. And we're willing to be honest. But the only reason that exists is because there's a prior relationship there. So how are we to know each other? Well, again, I think this goes back to we eat together. Right? You invite people into your home, you spend time with them, and you care for them, and you begin to love them, and so when they're going through a rough situation, you step in and you go, how can I help? And this sounds very all-encompassing, and that's the point, it is. But I think our culture has dichotomized our Christianity and gone, you have to have a job, and you have to work 40 hours a week, and you have to make X number of dollars, you have to do all of those things, and then you can do your Christian stuff on side of that, or alongside of that. And, and, and no. That's not what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures teach us that everything about who we are, what we do, and why we do is now shaped by Jesus. And so if I'm spending all my time at work or in my hobbies or in my career or in these other things and not seeing the needs of others, am I following Jesus? Or am I following my own desires? This is why we need to devote ourselves, come together to read the word, to pray to eat together, to fellowship with one another so that we become the church. Now, this is the beginning point of the church. I think the church was going to grow and evolve and change, but the very heart of it in these four things remained the same. And so this is the challenge that I have for you and for me and that has been convicting of me over the last couple of days as I've been preparing to say these things because I'm just going to warn you. I'm saying these things not because I've got it figured out and you should too. I'm saying it because it's scripture and I don't have it figured out and I need to submit myself to it and learn how to do it. Do I love the people of this church so much that I'd be willing to sell stuff? To get into their lives, to help them through. Not to just say, hey, I'll pray for you, but to actually pray for them. To not say, oh man, yeah, it sounds like you're really busy. Yeah, me too. See you later but to go, so let's figure out a way that we can figure out how to help each other. Can we reprioritize things? How do we do this? This is what the church did, and, and the expressions of and how we do ministry and the philosophy behind all those things, that'll change from church to church. And the various needs that exist in the churches, that'll change from church to church. But what shouldn't change is our hearts being in awe and wonder of who God is and how he has called us to minister and to serve one another. Because here's my conviction, is if we actually loved each other this way, the world would stop and they would look at it and they would go, why do you do that? I need that. 
right? I've quoted it lots of times, but Jesus says, you will know, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have what? If you have love for one another. The way that we treat each other as the body of Christ will be the biggest witness that we have to the world. So I said last week, the church, is, should be, the church should be one of the most important relationships that you have in this life because it's going to be the easiest one outside of our marriages and outside of our parenting to show people the love and the generosity of God. So how do we do that? How do we make it from intellectual information to an outpouring of what we do? Well, I think it's very simple we, we talked about this with our Tuesday Young Adult Bible Study, is we do it one at a time. We see one need and we respond one at a time. We don't look at the world and go, how can I fix that? Because you can't. What can you do is you can step out in faith and belief and go, God has called me to help this person, to talk to that person, to serve this person, to invite this family in for a meal to do little things to show that I want my life to be centered around who Jesus is so that the world would see it. Verse 46, day by day, they attended the temple together. In other words, they submitted themselves to the readings of Scripture. They broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, and they praised God. Not only did they devote themselves to these four things, here's how they actually did those four things. And having favor with all the people. I think that's just Luke's way of saying to us is when all of a sudden people love that effectively is even when people disagree, they look at it and they go, man, I can respect that. You put your money where your mouth is and you actually are loving the people that you say you're to love. And here's the response. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now again, we live in a different context in a different world. We don't have these Jewish people all right around our door who had rejected Jesus and then had been shown how that Jesus was the Messiah. We have different problems. We have problems of apathy. We have problems of a lack of even understanding of the fact that maybe there is a God who exists. There's all kinds of unique challenges that we have, but again, what can we do? We can devote ourselves to these four things. We can devote ourselves to Scripture, to fellowship with one another, to breaking bread together, and to prayer. And if we devote ourselves to those things, God's going to bring people to us. God's going to save people through his redeeming work on the cross. And we're going to watch our church family grow. Now again, we live in a place where we're going to watch them grow only to watch them leave and go off to somewhere else, but I hope that when they go off to somewhere else that that church grows. And that when they go home that they plug into a church way more than they ever did, not because we did something good, but because we were willing to submit ourselves to what God has called us to do. Shayla and I had a conversation a few months back with somebody who had been part of our church community for a little while and then had moved away and then a few months ago, they moved back, and, and they said, I reworked my school because um, I wanted to be back here with this church. And I thought, okay, we're doing something right. And we're not doing everything right. Don't hear me pretending that. But if we're making people go, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my career plans for a year so that I can spend more time with these people to learn more about Jesus, 
And I think we're doing something right then. But are we being intentional about that? And that's the challenge for us as we kind of go home from here, as we think about the creation of the church, the response. Have we declared Jesus as Lord? Are we living like he's actually Lord? Are we devoting ourselves to these four areas and saying everything about me is going to be infused with who God is? That's my challenge to us. There's one really great opportunity for you, real easy, 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. Come and pray. Come and pray for your church family. Come and pray for our community. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said, all revival is preceded by prayer. Let's pray.